As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the Archives of Unbelievable. Today, from February 2015, Joshua Ryan Butler, author of The Skeletons in God's Closet, discussed hell, judgment and holy war with Jeff Cook. They debated whether Old Testament warfare passages constitute divinely mandated genocide. Well, today on the programme, we're discussing The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment and The Hope of holy war Uh, two special guests join me josh butler and jeff cook and the title of skeletons in god's closet well that's the title of a new book by josh butler he says we'll pull these bones out into the open to exchange popular caricatures for the beauty and power of the real thing we'll discover these topics were never really skeletons at all but proclamations of a god who is good in his very bones, not just in what he does, but in who he is, will fling the wide the closet door and sing loudly, boldly and clearly, God is good and coming to redeem his world. Uh, so he tackles in The Skeletons in God's Closet uh, these three issues of hell, judgment and holy war. Uh, well, uh, in conversation with Josh today is Jeff Cook. He's a theologian, former guest on the show. Um, doesn't agree entirely with Josh's take on every aspect in the book. So we're going to have an interesting discussion, I think, today. Uh, and we're going to begin with talking about uh, what Jeff calls divinely mandated genocide. Now, uh, if you're um, interested, uh, there's a, a recent article in the magazine I edit, Premier Christianity magazine, dealing with the issue of did God command genocide, uh, written by Peter J. Williams of Tyndale House in Cambridge. Uh, you can get that. It's, uh, it's uh, available um, on the uh, on the website. You can get a free sample copy of the magazine for yourself, premierchristianity.com. But we're going to be exploring uh, Josh's take on this along with Jeff today on the programme. So uh, uh, a very good uh, afternoon to you both, gentlemen. Thank you. It's so good to be here. It's great to have yeah, you thanks on. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on too, Jeff. Um, Josh, let's start with you, um, and uh, sure. we want to we want to hear first a little bit about you. Um, you're uh, you're a church leader, I understand. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your own faith and and what led you to write this particular book? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I'm a pastor out here in uh, Portland, Oregon, out in the U.S. Uh, I have a wife, three children, uh, three young kids. Uh, one is foster. We're kind of adopting right now. And we, I, I oversee in our church, uh, particularly a focus on our local ministries here in, in Portland and then our international partnerships overseas. And yeah, a lot of the heart behind the book was just going, uh, these are questions that I wrestled with in my own faith over the years. And I just found so many people in our church uh, that, you know, were kind of processing and grappling with these questions. Uh, things like hell, judgment, holy war, kind of going, how do I 
reconcile that with the goodness of God and, and kind of my understanding of, of kind of the outrageous uh, love of Christ displayed on the cross. So uh, seeing that in our own church as well as in our city, uh, you know, lots of folks grappling with those questions and, and really wanting to, um, yeah, help help resource folks. And I, I think the, for me over the years, uh, I had had some paradigm shifts in my own life where you know, I think for a lot of us, we fear that God's kind of hiding these skeletons. There's these tough topics of the faith that if we were to really open up the closet doors, if we were to open up our Bibles and take a close look, I think the fear is that we'd find that God is not really good or worthy of our trust. Um, but I think that's often because we have a caricature of what's actually going on in the story. Uh, so my hope was to kind of confront some of those popular caricatures and uh, offer, you know, share some of the paradigm shifts that I found really helpful in a way where we see these topics arising because of the goodness of God uh, rather than in spite over in contradiction to it. So my big end game, I think my big hope at the end of the day was to uh, help us kind of reclaim a more robust confidence in the, in the goodness of God. I, I, is this a topic that has come more into people's minds and your church members' minds and so on because it tends to get lobbed as a criticism of God by skeptics online especially? I, I can barely have a conversation with a, a, an atheist uh, skeptic online without at some point these kinds of issues coming into the fray. So, so is that particularly why you think it's relevant at the moment? Uh, definitely, yeah. And, and, you know, even in, in my own experience, like these are questions I wrestled with, say, on the kind of the Holy War, the Old Testament violence, when I, I spent uh, about six months at an internship working on the Navajo Reservation here in, in the U.S., it's a kind of Native American uh, reservation here and seeing uh, some of the ways that in my own country's history, in U.S. history, uh, we had used uh, kind of, you know, stories, texts of Israel's kind of conquest of Canaan uh, to justify um, mistreatment and justice, I would say, against Native American peoples here on, on our soil. And I really became kind of... Um, uh, just disillusioned with going, wow, what is going on in, in the Bible? Is that just a, a kind of an ancient version of this modern injustice uh, that we see today? And so even my own life kind of grappling with how do I, how do I reconcile that with God? But um, as, as I dove into scripture and in that area and others, uh, suddenly pretty quickly finding uh, not only is something radically different, I think, happening here, it actually seems to be something that critiques say in that example, uh, critiques my country's history with Native peoples uh, it would actually um, confront us in many ways. And so, and in ways that I found actually pretty beautiful in terms of who God God is. So, yeah, so there's definitely a cultural context uh, and as well as uh, even just, you know, personally trying to dig deeper into Scripture. Well, it's great to have you on the program, Josh. And um, we're going we're gonna to start um, once uh, we get the conversation going with the issue of holy war. Uh, what some people, as I say, like to, to, to term genocide, though I don't know whether that's the term you're, you're, you'd be happy to kind of put on it in your book. But we'll come to all that in a moment's time. Thanks for being with us on the program today. Um, Jeff uh, is also with us, Jeff Cook, who's a former guest on the program. He's uh, in church leadership himself. And uh, Jeff, last time you joined me on the program, which was a couple of years ago now, um, you were um, sort of talking about your, your own book at the time, um, which kind of charts to some extent the fact that you kind of had a crisis of faith yourself um, and you and kind of about how you rebuilt your faith as it were from the ground up um, uh, tell me about you got in touch with me about this book tell me what what sparked your interest in in, in looking at these issues at this point um, I really enjoyed Josh's book I love his tone I think that he is addressing 
problems that need to be spoken about. Um, I loved that he wrestled with hell in in a way that hasn't been wrestled with from those who defend more of a traditional view of hell. He was really pushing into here's why um, hell itself is praiseworthy or it is a solution that God might foresee and advocate. Um, those are things that I've wanted to hear from, from, from folks on the traditional side. Um, and yeah, and I, and I just, I, I really did enjoy the book. I thought it was worthy of, of, of having a conversation. Mm. Over. I mean, you, you've certainly wrestled yourself with these issues, haven't you? Um, over the years, D- do you feel like you kind of got to a point where you, you've got a a particular view on on hell and judgment and some of those Old Testament passages on warfare that that you can live with, or is there still a certain amount of uh, I'm not sure what I believe or, or what's going on with some of those? Yeah, um, on on hell, I come down on the annihilationist side. Um, I wrote a book, the book I wrote a while back, Everything New. Um, it seems to me the annihilationist picture of of hell is actually has a lot of value in God's solution of eliminating evil. Um, In terms of divinely mandated genocide, this is something I don't know what to do with. Um, I think a lot of Christians are probably in that spot. Um, We hear the language used in the Old Testament, and we have a very difficult time imagining that the things being put into the mouth of God would actually be spoken by Jesus Christ. Um, and so so I'm looking for answers on that. I would love to see the Bible as inspired and fully, you know, beautiful in everything that it communicates. And obviously, when like many, when I get to those passages, I have a really difficult time uh, wrestling through them myself. Okay, well, it should be an interesting conversation anyway um, to, 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 to start to look into these issues. Um, and if you're listening and you'd like to have your say as well, well, why not to set it down in an email to me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk to email me. We'll be hearing some of your feedback towards the end of today's show, of course, to recent programs as well. Uh, you can find us online at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Today's show is there. You can leave your comments under it. Uh, you can also click through to the Facebook and Twitter accounts at UnbelievableJB for Twitter, facebook.com slash UnbelievableJB on the Facebook page. So we're discussing The Skeletons in God's Closet today. That's the title of the new book by Josh Butler, looking at hell, judgment and holy war. Uh, Big issues, uh, certainly um, sort of not something that we can do thoroughly in the course of today's program but at least we'll get a sense of where josh is coming from and where jeff is coming from on some of these issues so that's uh, the topic of today's program here on the show that aims to get you thinking unbelievable with justin Briley. well maybe the way to uh, start off our conversation then is uh, jeff uh, for you to Pitch the problem of what you call divinely mandated genocide. And we're talking here, I guess, about those troublesome passages in the Old Testament where in Deuteronomy and Joshua and other places, God appears to command um, destruction of men, women and children. Do you want to just pitch the problem here and we'll see what Josh says in return? Yeah, so the way I see this, when I think through this as a philosopher on one side and then on the other side as a Christian, as a philosopher, it seems to me, you would want to avoid um, 
killing people just in general. And it seems to me just thinking through God's motives, God is exceedingly powerful. He can move human beings or keep them from occupying land that he's reserved for other purposes in nonviolent ways. And there's really no reason for God to use what appear to be immoral tactics or, or even just violent tactics. Um, on the flip side, just as a Christian, I have a difficult time imagining Jesus commanding, you know, the systematic execution of seven-year-olds. Those are very difficult to, to go together. And it's not just the seven-year-olds dying. It's also using human beings, using Israelites to, in fact, kill the seven-year-olds. And so there, there would be significant damage on the people actually having to do the violence. Um, and when we look at Jesus just in general, in terms of what Jesus' priorities seem to be in his life, um, he, it seems like he is routinely rejecting the land as worthy of devotion. Um, Jesus consistently is rejecting, uh, becoming a military style king or using force. At one point he says, I could call on 12 legions as angels, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to do that. And and he clearly has the opportunity to use the sorts of tactics used in the Old Testament. And why? Why is it that there's this shift, this change? It seems like Jesus' methods are much better. Um, and so it seems to me this calls into question whether or not the, the deity that God pictured in some of the Old Testament passages is, in fact, uh, Jesus. And so I don't know how I wrestle that. I would love good answers mm. on that front. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and, and as you say, quite, quite honestly there, as a Christian, you wrestle with this. It's not something you've come to terms with in terms of how these can be divinely inspired texts when you, you see this disparity, uh, as it would seem, between the, the way Jesus acts and models his character and 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 what these um these commands seem to represent in the old testament um okay josh i think that's nicely spelled out the issue how do you respond to it in the book yeah definitely so i, I think there's two kind of really important great issues that jeff brought up there the first being the kind of issue of uh, genocide kind of the scope of the issue and then uh the second being the question of the relation to kind of jesus the new testament all and kind of starting with the first one on is this genocide and, and i would actually contest and, and suggest that it's it's not uh but there's three kind of key uh, angles or observations that, that i make in the book uh, along the, the lines where um at first glance i think as a modern 21st century reader i'm looking through and, and some of the commands can seem really pretty brutal you know, um, but in context, uh, three observations. First would be uh, that these cities that are spoken of that are kind of dedicated to destruction uh, in the book of Joshua, for example, and the conquest of Canaan are um, really military cities. So when I hear the word city today, modern 21st century West, I think of a civilian population center, right? So I, I live in a city and I kind of step outside and I see schools and playgrounds and hospitals and restaurants and the whole kind of uh, civic urban in life, you know, uh, but in the ancient world, it was different, and particularly in the Middle East, uh, these cities in, say, the Book of Joshua, for example.
people were these small fortified military outposts that we would think of more as like a military fort. Uh, the bulk of the populations lived up in the hills, and they looked to the cities uh, as kind of the, the fortresses for protection from invasion. So uh, Jericho, for example, um, it's estimated, uh, best estimates with archaeology and other things are that there was likely no more than a few hundred soldiers in there, maybe even as, as few as 50 to 200. And so um, I think that kind of confronts this picture that the Israelites are coming in and they're just uh, annihilating civilian population centers. There's more of this picture that they're taking out uh, these fortified military outposts. They're kind of taking down the Great Wall of China, not taking out Beijing. That makes sense there. Um, it, it's, uh, they're taking on Napoleon and his militias, not Paris and her masses, in a sense. So there, there is kind of a military context versus a civilian context here. Uh, the second observation is uh, what I call an- ancient trash talk, uh, kind of this idea of the way war rhetoric functioned in the ancient Middle East. Um, there are numerous examples uh, just flooded throughout kind of the way ancient Middle Easterners talked about war, where um, they, they used very exaggerated war rhetoric. Uh, so this would be similar to uh, in some ways, for example, like a basketball game today, right? Where you hear, uh, say the team wins, and you hear them in the locker room afterwards, and they're like, we annihilated them, wiped the floor with them, there was nothing they had on us, like, you just you just killed them, you know? And you would hear it and kind of go, oh, the score was maybe 120 to zero, uh, something just outrageously, you know, different. But then you find out the actual score was 120 to 105, let's say. Uh, and they did kind of win a decisive victory, but it's nowhere near as dramatic as the language alone would suggest. And that's really the case where you've got uh, these, uh, you know, throughout the ancient Middle East, this language being used of show no mercy, we destroyed them all, there were no survivors, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, but then you actually look at the aftermath, and there were, the, the people were alive and well, the battles kept going, the, you know, the, there were still uh, lots of skirmishes left to come. And I think the Bible itself, the Old Testament, shows us that it's doing this because in a lot of these problematic passages where that language gets used, all you have to, every time the language is used, and it's only a few spots, all you have to do is go another chapter or a few chapters ahead, and you find that the same enemies that were supposedly annihilated and wiped out are back and are as strong as ever. Both of those uh, issues you raise there, I think, have have also been spelt out uh, in some detail by Paul Copan and Matthew Flanagan and so on, uh, who, who and other scholars who who have recognised, as you say, that there is this apparently exaggerated kind of aspect to some of the genres of literature in the Old Testament, and the the fact that these yeah these cities were perhaps more like military centres, and so even if there was a command to to destroy men, women, and children, it would have been more than likely combatants who were encamped at these places i suppose it still leaves the question well was the command wrong though in that sense even if maybe the reality was was a bit different was the command to wipe out men women and children wrong in itself yeah so good when uh you know another so say that phrase uh, men women and children when it shows up it's actually kind of a hebrew phrase sort of like heaven and earth or you know uh, where it's it's a, a phrase of totality it speaks to uh, kind of like wipe out the military fort and the totality of everyone inside who doesn't flee or run or get away, right? So, um, and so the the assumption would be that there weren't any women or children inside, you know. So, uh, on, on kind of the question you raised of, um, you know, uh, the Israelites being commanded to kill a seven year old Amalekite boy, I think was was the imagery being used, and 
And part, I guess for me, part of it is I, I, I don't think that probably actually happened, you know, because the seven-year-olds and the moms and the grandparents would have been up in the hills uh, looking to the, the cities for, for protection. Uh, it's interesting, the only actual civilian and only uh, uh, woman who's, who's mentioned is, um, is uh, Rahab and all, and, 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 and in context, uh, scholars believe she was likely a prostitute, you know, who maybe ran the tavern, uh, it was often for uh, kind of the the military fortress, you know, and, and people who maybe uh, visitors that would be would be coming from out of town. So there's a sense of like the only real uh, men, you know, the only real woman, child, or early person that, that's mentioned is actually spared, which which seems significant as well. But the the final maybe third point I, I just speak to quickly would be that uh, the primary language and imagery that shows up. Uh, is actually the language of drive out, uh, to drive them out, uh, not kill off. You know, I think the, the kind of killing them off language only shows up in very few places, but the language of driving them out shows up uh, over 50 times in, in the Old Testament. So it's really kind of the primary image is that of uh, eviction rather than murder. Uh, and I, I draw attention to some parallels with the imagery of Adam and Eden, Adam and Eve being exiled, uh, evicted from Eden, uh, being some of the same kind of imagery and language that's being used here, that uh, Canaan, they've kind of been trampling God's garden for so long, and so now they're being driven out, kind of exiled from the garden. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, okay, so so th- these three aspects then of, of how we might understand these Old Testament passages uh, of warfare, does that help, Jeff, for you um, to, if you like, ease the problem? Um, I mean, effectively, there are different ways of saying, it wasn't actually as bad as it's sometimes painted. Uh, this didn't involve women and children, most probably. The command itself, you know, could be interpreted not as meaning specifically men, women and children, but simply everybody in that place, if you like. Um, uh, 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 so, 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 yeah, what, what do, you, do you make of this particular way of seeing things? Yeah, um, I thought that Josh's work on, on the book of Joshua was really interesting on that front. I, it doesn't. It doesn't actually scratch where I itch. Um, the it is you. You brought it up, Justin. That it's the commands themselves are are pro, are troublesome. Um, and it seems to me, if in a land the size of Canaan, if you're going to take over the land, uh, and I hear Josh's phrasing there, sometimes this is um, killing. Oftentimes, it might be driving people out. Driving people out is still immoral, um, arguably. Um, the, however, the passages—the um, one that really hits me most—is in First Samuel 15, where um, it is God speaking: "Do not spare men and women, children and infants." And there is a command that everything um, be destroyed. Um, and the reason given for destroying the Amalekites in this passage is that their ancestors 400 years ago treated the Hebrews badly when they were coming up out of slavery. And that, that kind of passage just is, is troublesome, and, and I, I don't know that it's worth defending them. I, re- I, I want to actually applaud people that, that try and defend them, but there is a point in time where you're, I think it's, it's, it might be good and healthy to just say, these are, un- these are not praiseworthy passages. 
Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just a you know quick thought uh, response because yeah, I, I definitely that's you know one of the few places the the Samuel passage that uh, Jeff just mentioned is is a difficult passage. It's there and in Joshua are kind of the two main places that it shows up. But I also think it's interesting uh, at the end of Joshua. Uh, it comes to a description of him having uh, done this, kind of having driven out, uh, destroyed everything. And, and it says um, Joshua did this exactly as the Lord had commanded, uh, which I think is interesting because it shows or demonstrates that for the author of the book of Joshua, he understands not only kind of the actions that took place downstream, uh, but actually the original command from God to be this exaggerated war rhetoric, uh, to not be uh, kind of a literal depiction that it's using kind of that ancient language. And so uh, my take would be, yeah, when we get to the passage in Samuel, um, we see the same things happening. There, there is that command given, uh, but then we also go a few chapters later. I can't remember the exact chapter in Samuel, but we come a little later, and David is actually running into the same people that Saul supposedly annihilated and wiped out. They're still alive, still as strong as ever. And I, 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 I think there's a strong uh, case to be made in context that it's a, a military skirmish versus a civilian massacre. I guess, but but does that answer for you the issue of it being commanded nonetheless, um, Jeff? Um, no, I, I I think that it's a it seems it seems to me that unless the translate, I mean, it's an English translation, so maybe they're off. But I mean, this the report comes back. I mean, if you read through First Samuel fifteen, the report comes back. Saul says, "Hey, I, I did everything you said," and and you know the what uh, the prophet Samuel sees, no, you kept some of the the herds and the king, and apparently carried out all the rest. Um, it's the command. The, the voice of the Lord is simply a different personality than Jesus Christ. That's, that seems to me the problem. That's, that's your main problem with it. We're, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back to this. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a thorny question today on Unbelievable. The issue of uh, what Jeff calls divinely mandated genocide, not sure that's the phrase that that Josh goes with, but in his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, he certainly deals with these passages of Old Testament warfare, along with hell and judgment, and we'll we'll get to that as well in the course of today's programme. But uh, Jeff is a Christian, but he says, I really struggle with uh, these Old Testament warfare passages. I'm not sure that I can say that they are divinely inspired and and praiseworthy texts. Uh, I don't see Jesus in them in the same way I see him in the New Testament. So we're going to continue this discussion in a moment's time. Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. Don't forget, you can get in touch to email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong. 
because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to today's program with me, Justin Briley, and today on the program, uh, we're asking about uh, a topic that we've done before in a couple of ways over the years, but um, those problematic texts in the Old Testament involving warfare and uh, the apparent uh, command by God to um, slaughter men, women and children, um, the what's called divinely mandated genocide, says Jeff Cook, who's one of my guests on the program today. Uh, my other guest is Josh Butler, who in his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment and The Hope of Holy War, believes that actually we can affirm every part of the Bible as um, affirming the goodness of God. And that, uh, as he explained in the first part, we, we need to be very careful when we're dealing with these texts regarding warfare in the Old Testament. They may not um, uh, be everything that they appear to be at face value um, when we understand the, the context and the culture and uh, and what was being said at the time. Um, I mean, one of the things, though, that, that we came to at the end of that last section, Josh, was Jeff simply saying, I, it just doesn't look at all like Jesus, and, and this is the problem for him. Um, uh, and I think it, that gets expressed in various different ways by lots of people um, who say the God of the Old Testament just look so different um you know in terms of wrath and ang- anger and so on to to jesus um who who seems to to kind of b- represent a very different face if you like to god um how, how do you go about reconciling these two if if they need to be reconciled josh mm, yeah def- i mean that's that's the question obviously jesus is our uh, first and foremost as you know followers of christ so we're trying to engage that so that that's really the question uh, maybe zooming out for me uh, one of the big paradigms just that helped uh, a lot and in, in my engagement was going i think when we usually when we hear the words holy war today when we think of these kind of um, ancient battles or whatever uh, we tend to think of the strong using the gods or god you know to justify their conquest of the weak and one of the things that i think is actually happening in the old testament that kind of reframes the violence and what's happening is uh, i found that it's actually the opposite it's god rising up on behalf of the weak when the tyranny of the strong has been raging for far too long so it's not kind of the strong using gods to oppress the weak it's god rising up on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong and so a few observations are just going uh, egypt and canaan are both kind of depicted as these ancient imperial powerhouses kind of the mighty dominant for centuries they've been building their empires and establishing themselves in the ancient world and israel is really depicted as kind of the last and the least this nation of slaves um, who've had kind of the boot of empire on their neck for centuries and god is kind of i think arising in sort of eschatological judgment of a sense on the empires of the ancient world there was really kind of emphasis of structural judgment on kind of these imperial powerhouses god driving them out and handing over the land to kind of his homeless, wandering, beat up, broken, bruised, uh, last and least of the nation slaves. I think in part, God is sending a message to the ancient world to go, this is who I am, this is how I judge. I, I stand up for the downtrodden, for the outcast, for the exploited, for the, the last and the least. And um, 
a few kind of quick observations on uh, some of the distinction in the Old Testament uh, in, in kind of the Canaan encounter. Uh, one is uh, just that Israel, they, they have no weapons. You know, we tend to think of them coming in maybe with machine guns or, you know, some of that effect. And, and in the reality, it's like, it, it's not like there was a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them in the desert after they left Egypt. They're really coming out as a nation of slaves, and they're encountering Canaan, who's got uh, chariots and horses and uh, armor, and, and they've got all the uh, all the weapons you could imagine. Um, and then the Israel's strategies are ridiculous, right? Like, how are we going to take Jericho? We'll march around the walls ten times, then blow, or seven times, and blow trumpets. You know, like, we're going to make music. It's it's really ridiculous battle strategy. You can imagine the, you know, uh, allied soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy with, instead of weapons, you know, with musical instruments, with guitars or something. You know, and, like, it, it would just be a slaughter. There, there, it, it's a... Uh, there's a ridiculousness to the battle strategy. So I try and trace in the book how it's not just a, it's not the exception, but it's the norm. Pretty much all of the battle strategies look kind of ridiculous. And I think they're designed to, to show that God is the one who's really leading the charge and fighting on behalf of his sort of weak and exploited, beleaguered people against kind of the ancient empires of the world. Um, Israel's got no chance unless God's the one uh, leading the charge. And uh, finally, a uh, final point I make is just uh, with ideology going, I think we tend to justify the wars we wage by pointing to how great our civilization is, right? So uh, the Roman Empire, you know, like the Pax Romana, we're bringing this peace in the wake of the fighting and it justifies our wars. Um, today, I think there'd be a sense of, well, we've got Coca-Cola and computers and compact cars, and kind of we're bringing democracy and freedom. We, we'll use what we perceive to be the greatness of our civilization to justify our warfare. But the Old Testament, again, flips it, and it's exactly the opposite. Israel seems to constantly be boasting in... Um, just that she's disobedient, she's rebellious, she's idolatry, you know, and, and it's almost like Israel hired a reporter to walk around and track all of her biggest mistakes and shortcomings and weaknesses and to blast them all over uh, their own history books, you know. So victors usually write the history books. Israel looks like she got the enemy to write hers, you know. So there's this, um, so all that to say, it doesn't necessarily, uh, violence is still a tricky topic today. It doesn't necessarily solve it, and I have some thoughts on that, but I do think it starts to reframe the type of violence that we see happening, you know, that it's, uh, yeah, it, it starts to present a different picture, I think, than the... Yeah, if, if, if it's the, the underdog, the, the oppressed, the marginalized who are kind of rising up in that sense. Um, Jeff, I don't know if any of this helps um, for you. I know that violence generally is an issue for you um, when it comes to whether God would sanction violence full stop in a way but um yeah just a response to josh there i i thought that was some of the stronger points that that josh made uh in the book and i thought that that was really worthwhile i thought it was praiseworthy i would gladly trade you know america's defense strategy for you know picking up musical instruments and marching around our enemies um fortresses (laughs) instead of what we presently tend to do um so i i actually think that that that's really um and mark that, that's a step forward um may not get all the way there but i think it, i do think that that's a step forward um i am convinced that jesus thinks that violence doesn't solve problems ever um i'm convinced that the rest of the new testament writers are gonna agree and i think revelation for example is going to really highlight 
how Christians, the, the most powerful weapon that we have is our own suffering. Um, and, and I think God being all-knowing knows this, and that's why when, when saying that the Old Testament is inspired, I would, I would love to elevate some of the passages that Josh is highlighting and saying, this is beautiful, this is praiseworthy, these are things that do seem to flow from the Spirit of God. I do want to say that there's another voice going on in the Old Testament, and sometimes it's very difficult to reconcile those voices. And maybe it's a dialogue within Israel saying, what kind of people are we going to be, or what kind of God are we going to serve? Um, maybe what's inspired is a dialogue as opposed to a monologue. Um, those are ways I, I try and wrestle with this, but at the end of the day, it seems to me um, there is some 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 awful material still, you know, in, in the mm. Old Testament, even though there is some very, very praiseworthy stuff like Josh Tyling. I mean, do you feel in that sense, Jeff, that Jesus, I mean, what do you think Jesus would say uh, about those passages in the Old Testament? Well, and I haven't done a ton of study on this, but I know that Jesus skips a lot of material. He'll be quoting a passage out of Isaiah, for example, and there'll be something about um, destroying your enemies, and he'll skip right over it and then keep going. Mm. And so there, there is a worthy study of noticing the things that Jesus um, passes over as though they're unworthy of being said, or perhaps he's saying, you know what, this isn't where, where our kingdom's going to go. And it's worth even saying, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount begins with him revising and, and improving upon what Moses has handed down. And so it's not, it's not un, you know, unseemly to, to, to say, hey, this, the Old Testament doesn't go far enough. So, so, so when Jesus be, says, it, I, it was said unto you, uh, an yeah. eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, yeah. love your enemies, forgive those who persecute you, and so on. He he effectively, you believe, is revising, if you like, the Old Testament, you know, position, if you like, on on warfare and, and violence and so on. I think he's radically reshaping the ethic. Um, I am an ethicist. He is trading up Moses' deontological position for his own virtue ethical position. He is saying the rules don't matter anymore. What matters is the good heart, for out of the good tree, you know, a good tree will always produce good fruit. Um, and so nearly everything you see in terms of Jesus' ethic, and this is adopted by Paul, ends up focusing on character formation, on on the sort of person you are and not um, the sorts of things that you do. Now that's just one revision, but I imagine that when Jesus says things later in Matthew 5 about God, how God's love is communicated to humanity, sending the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the sunshine on the righteous and unrighteous, that is the heart of the Father for all human beings. And that would be another example of something very difficult to square mm. with hey, this is our land, let's take it, so, these so, guys don't matter. So for you then, Jeff, whatever the Old Testament is, whatever is happening in these stories in the Old Testament, it's it's got to be in some way an impartial, imperfect picture of the character of God when it comes to those commands about um, attacking and, and warfare and so on, because Jesus, if he is the perfect picture of God, radically gives a, a radically different idea on those issues. Yeah, I think... Our reading of the Old Testament needs to be come with 
you know, with cross-shaped glasses. And, and we need to be able to exclude things that simply do not conform to the character and personality of Jesus, it, it, or at least set them aside for a moment and just say, look, we don't understand this yet. We'll get to it later. But for now, this is just off the table. It's an interesting approach. Um, Josh, do, yeah. do, do you think yeah. that's, that's a, a, a valid way of treating the Old Testament, say, if it doesn't conform with what with how we understand God through Jesus Christ, we sort of we set it aside or at least say we, we're not going to deal with that at this point? Yeah, well, I, I definitely understand the tension. I, I think I would probably tend to take a little bit of a different approach. Um, so, for example, if we take the passage, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, I see um, not so much a radical reshaping or discontinuity as much as Jesus deepening uh, kind of the Old Testament. So uh, I was struck reading uh, the early church fathers back in the day and, and being struck how a number of them, when they talk about that passage, uh, the way they saw what Jesus was doing was in the Old Testament context with Moses, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, it wasn't like, hey, if someone takes your eye, go take theirs too. It was more like, dude, if someone pokes out your eye, you want to slit their throat and take their life. <laughs> so, so there's a sense of it's restraining. We want to, uh, and that's how this kind of cycle of violence kind of spirals out of proportion. You know, you take my sheep, I go take your cows, and then you set my barn on fire, and then the, you know, uh, families are at war for generations. And so it's going, if someone, you know, I think the, the, the sense of the Mosaic law, in my understanding there is going, um, if someone does something to you, you're not allowed to do more than what they took, which is what you want to do. You know, so there's sort of a restraint on our violent impulses. And so what I see Jesus doing is not necessarily, uh, annihilating, you know, abolishing, um, uh, the 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 heart of that law as much as he's deepening it going I'm taking the restraint even further like not only can you not get that back you're you're going to move towards forgiveness and and uh, and not non retaliation and so um and so I, I and I tend to in many areas see Jesus in the New Testament deepening the heart of the old rather than radically overthrowing it if that makes is sense the, is this in some sense a kind of form of progressive revelation at some level that that if you like god moves yes. at the pace of where people are at in their culture and time and and jesus at the point we get to jesus they're ready to hear a kind of a radically different kind of way of of treating your neighbor um even, yeah. even as much as the old testament had sort of moved people on at least a little bit from where they were Yes, yeah. So there's sort of a trajectory, um, even in the Old Testament, of, of non-retaliation uh, to an, to an extent. And and but I do think even in the New that there is at, at least I, I, I suggest or would make the case that there is um, uh, a legitimacy. There's a distinction I think that is assumed between uh, kind of personal identity and sort of institutional or governmental identity. Um, that Moses is able to give the command. Thou shalt not, uh, you know, murder, but then uh, is able to partake in uh, as as a governor, you know, is, is able to partake in killing immediately thereafter, and it's uh, not not seen in, as a contradiction. And I think that's that's kind of uh, most societies throughout history have kind of seen that distinction. The police are allowed to do something that I, as a citizen, am not, you know, um, and I, and where I kind of go with that is to make a distinction between. I, I think Jeff is right. I don't think violence accomplishes things if what we're talking about accomplishing is kind of redemption uh there there's sort of the many will critique kind of the myth of redemptive violence and, and i would say i don't believe uh violence is redemptive but i do think it can be preservative and and i think in the kind of mature kind of robust uh 
much of the historic Christian tradition would say uh, there's a role that government has in utilizing the sword to kind of put a restraint on evil, to sort of preserve the shalom and flourishing of society. Um, and governmental violence doesn't redeem. It doesn't bring redeem, redemption, but it, it can restrain. So an example, I went on a police ride-along years ago, and we stopped to get a drink uh, at a you know, little convenience store. And as we walked in, there was an immigrant family um, that owned the store and kind of an old elderly man. And he ran up from behind the counter, ran up and gave the police officer a hug. And I was kind of shocked, like, what's going on here? Why is this man giving the police officer a hug? And I asked him, he said, well, you know, uh, for a while, uh, you know, we were getting robbed like a couple times a week. I felt afraid for our life, for my wife's life. We called the police. No one would come. And then eventually this police officer began to show up regularly and just his presence as someone that kind of wielded the sword, so to speak, you know, uh, incited fear. And he's like, we haven't been robbed in a couple months now. And he's like, I just feel like there's a, there's a safety there. And so that spoke to me of what I think is kind of going on in Romans 13, this idea that I don't believe governmental violence is redemptive. I can't reestablish Shalom. Um, but I do think there's a place that, uh, it, it, it provokes a, it can put a restraint on sin. Uh, yeah. Let, let, let's let's allow Jeff uh, a little time then to, to, to dig into this. Um, it, I mean, you can respond to that, Jeff. You can talk as well, I guess, about your own view. Um, I'm kind of getting the sense that you're a pacifist at some level um, when it comes to your view of, of what what are the, the Christian approach to violence as far as we, we see it in Jesus. Yeah, um, I am. I think uh, Paul says that love never fails that's a that's a universal claim that's a that you can't possibly imagine a situation in which love will not accomplish god's best and will and it seems to me that violence is really difficult to square with a posture of love um and the effectiveness of jesus cross ends up being the paradigmatic you know way of seeing how we ought to confront the evil in our world um i'm I am okay in the idea of preservative, um, perhaps I would want to call it restraint. I mean, like uh, physical force um, that's focused on restraining those who are um, wicked. Um, But obviously, I think that must be wed with wisdom. And it seems to me the Christian community at our best needs to showcase the brilliance of how taking on suffering ourselves actually affects and redeems the world around us. Um, Mm. Uh, But in a sense, then, do you see that there's any any case for saying that there was this, if you like, um, in a sense, progression the Old Testament, even even those laws that that Jesus revised, if you like, they they right. for for their time were to some extent um creating an answer to a problem which was a, you know a, a cycle of violence um and saying no we're going to, it's an eye for an eye not an eye and a tooth for an eye or whatever um yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that uh, and so again i'm an ethicist on this right i would i would uh moses is a lot like aristotle in terms of their view of Aristotle's view of physics is really ancient and basic. Newton comes along, and Aristotle isn't wrong on some fronts, but Newton makes a whole lot more sense. And there's a paradigm shift. There's a complete trading up of philosophies at work. 
um, I, I would reject the progressive revelation. What happens is there is a, a absolutely new ethical theory that Jesus is advocating. It is the case that Moses is great in terms of creating an ancient society based on rules. Jesus rejects the rules. Paul rejects the rules. In fact, they showcase the places that rules actually are dehumanizing if you focus on a rule-based ethic. It is about character and becoming, um, you know, being made in, into the image of God. That is what's most vital to the ethical life. Mm. Uh, just just um, be interested in hearing from you, Josh, as we, we get towards the end of the second part of the program. Um we haven't talked yet about judgment and, and hell, which are other aspects covered in the book. What's the overall paradigm um, that you're trying to picture in here about these these issues, which, as you say, are often um, there's often a popular caricature about the, the these issues. You know, hell is this medieval torture chamber. Judgment is God being mean, basically, and, and holy war is is genocide and so on. But what what is your kind of overall what if someone was reading this book what would you want them to take away in terms of the big picture of of god and what's going on with these issues yeah that's great i i think you know one of the big things i found if we start with hell for example is that i think the the overarching story i think most folks have is kind of the sense of like right now i live on earth when i'm going to die and god's either going to send me up to heaven or down to hell and uh, and so hell starts to become kind of this underground torture chamber, and it makes God look vindictive and all. Um, but I really don't think that's the biblical story at all. I think the biblical story is not God being on a mission to get us out of earth and into heaven or hell. I would suggest the biblical story is God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell. Uh, there's a sense that God has created a good heavens and a good earth, good creation, but in the biblical story, heaven and earth are torn apart by the destructive power of sin, that our sin kind of unleashes <clears throat> this this uh, destructive power into the world. But God's good, so he's on this mission in and through Christ to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring creation back to himself. And so then, uh, you know, that he, and he's reconciling it from the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. And in this story, I think we start to see it arise uh, from the goodness of God, like actually to be something that comes from uh, his goodness rather than kind of this vindictive, uh, mean-spiritedness, and uh, it's God's good purposes for his world, but it does face us with this kind of tension or challenge because we in many ways have set ourselves in opposition to God's goodness and God's good purposes for the world. So we're kind of placed in this place of going, are we going to receive God's mercy and be restored and reconciled and healed, or do we kind of want to resist and cling to our idols, our independence, our autonomy, and uh, and and not be made fit for the kingdom? And so, um, so that's kind of the paradigm shift there i'd say at the the biggest level is seeing it arising out of from the goodness of god from his desire to reconcile uh, heaven and earth yeah and maybe this yeah i, I could stop there and if we want let's to let's get, get a bit of in from jeff on this i mean you you said at the outset jeff that you did appreciate the the way that josh for instance tackles the issue of hell um even though you do take a different perspective you're an annihilationist uh, and, and i think josh ultimately defends still a sort of an, a, an eternal aspect to to the nature of hell do you want to just speak into what what yeah. josh said there both josh and i both use almost identical arguments uh, about hell and just in when we come to the conclusion we both go different ways um i 
I think that um, the things that I appreciated most in his book and the things that I was learning was that he was picturing the nature of evil as a force that unravels, that evil itself, evil, hell, sin, death, these should be almost, I took it that these are synonymous in some ways, that it is a power at work. um, In my first book, Seven, which is on the deadly sins and the Beatitudes, um, I go into that in terms of the nature of sin, that that is, it's, 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 a, it's a power as opposed to the description of just acts. We mm. should think about sin that way. But hell, if you, are, if you die and are separated from God, who is the source of life, and given to the power of sin, what will that unconscious power do to you aside from tear you apart? And so that would be my conclusion. Josh's was more, and he could go into this, is more about containment. But I don't know why God would create that sphere or where that sphere exists, or um, I would need to know more about the ontology of how hell as an entity actually continues to exist in an everlasting way. Um, um, That's something I would want to answer. Yeah, Josh. Josh, what, it's interesting to, to hear Jeff say it, we we go almost exactly together until the end when you see in the end the solution, if you like, to the issue of of sin and an evil, be and rebellion being an eternal place of whatever it is, regret and um, uh, rebellion. Whereas for, for for Jeff, obviously, the natural conclusion is simply. A, a final end and and uh, being cut off from god means you're you're cut off from existence effectively what what's what's made you kind of still nonetheless take the traditional perspective at least on this yeah definitely and and i should say you know i, I do think that there are some strong biblical uh, arguments and things that can be made for the annihilationist or you know conditional mortality perspective but i, I do land in in the more traditional camp and, and a few thoughts just on that part would be um, first off is I think the the resurrection of Christ is kind of central for me. I, I think that uh, in Christ's resurrection, what he is accomplishing is his victory over sin, death, and the grave. Uh, and there's a sense that um, for annihilationism, I, I, there's a sense of... Uh, I don't think we can go back into the grave anymore because because Christ has conquered it in a sense, you know. So one of the arguments I, I suggestions I make is that I, I think it would minimize the scope and power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, that actually, uh, even if we would want to, we can't necessarily go back into the dust, and that's actually a a, a part of God's mercy uh, towards towards us all that He would raise all, not just the 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 good but the wicked as well in the sense that there's there's a the resurrection sort of lays a claim on all um, but another argument i make is that um i i, I would actually suggest that uh, often and not always but i think often the um at least on a popular level that when i see people um going for our annihilationism i think it's often because they're responding to a caricature of hell as torture you know it's kind of like the torture chamber just looks awful and just put them out of their misery kind of thing right you know uh, but i really try to make a strong case that uh, the traditional view is just it's not torture there there is torment and i think it's a very different thing from torture though and so uh when when we have i think a more robust picture in place uh, i would actually suggest that uh, to annihilate the unrepentant sinner uh, is more cruel than to allow them to live on in kind of their self-inflicted predicament, uh, if you will. So, 
it's an interesting perspective Let, let's um t- take a quick break there and we're going to start to wrap things up in the next section of the program Today we're discussing the skeletons in God's closet. Uh, my guests are Josh Butler and Jeff Cook. I'm Justin Briley. This is unbelievable. Time of the week here on Premier Christian Radio when we help you think through big issues. And today's has certainly been big issues, hell and genocide in the Old Testament. Uh, not not small ones that we're tackling today. But uh, I hope you can stay with us through to the third part of today's programme. OK, we're wrapping up our discussion on the skeletons in God's closet. Uh, the person bringing them out into the open has been Josh Butler, who's a church leader, but uh, in his book uh, he talks about hell, judgment and holy war and says that we don't need to, as it were, see these as uh, deficiencies in God's character somehow, but that when we rightly understand them we will see that all of all of Scripture points to the goodness of God. And we've uh, talked uh, certainly at length at the beginning of today's programme about issues around holy war, passages in scripture on warfare, what uh, Jeff Cook, my other guest, describes as divinely mandated genocide and says he simply can't in the end reconcile with the the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so we've had some interesting discussions around that. We talked about hell as well a little bit, and we, we will mention judgment as well, which I think is important. Um, if you want to find out more about both of my guests, uh, books and so on, um, Josh is at joshuaryanbutler.com. Uh, and as we've mentioned, his book is The Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, Jeff can be found at everythingnew.org. Uh, his uh, books that he's published and came on to talk about a couple of years ago actually was Everything New and his book Seven. So um, go and go and look those up. Uh, links, of course, from today's program as well uh, online. Um, Jeff, you wanted to respond just briefly to what um, Josh had to say about why the resurrection of Christ at some level means that for him annihilation isn't the best way of of seeing god's uh you know the way god will finally judge those who who rebel if you like what what were your thoughts on that yeah um i agree that resurrection is the defeat of hades it is not the defeat of gehenna or what we might what is later called the lake of fire hades gets thrown into the lake of fire alongside um, the souls of the damned, as well as, as the satanic forces. Um, and so that is a, the image of destruction of all things that that um, will not conform to the new creation, because God's going to be God of, of everything. He's making everything new. He will be all in all. Um, in terms of mercy being shown through um, eternal punishment as opposed to annihilation, I mean, this is a value judgment, I, 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 I suppose. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, and God says he will not allow them to stay in the garden because they would, in their sinful condition, eat from the tree of life and live forever. And apparently God thinks that living forever under the reign of sin, would be very, very bad. And so mercy for God in Genesis 3 is allowing Adam and Eve to return to the dust, as it were, to be annihilated. In, in my mind and heart, that actually is the merciful step. If, if I had to choose one of my sons, either going on indefinitely for trillions upon trillions of years under the reign of sin, or to allow a merciful God to, 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 to end their lives, I would choose ending their lives. And it seems to me most of the metaphors Jesus uses in his parables point to exactly that. Quick response, Josh? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, uh, 
Yeah, I think the the book goes into a lot more of kind of my my theological arguments, but I think where I'd I'd maybe go here would just be a a thought. If the gospel is like a marriage proposal of God going, I want to be in union with you, want to be united with you, live life together forever with you, uh, it seems to me that the marriage proposal of annihilation kind of comes down to going, uh, marry me or I'll kill you. (laughs) You know, be united with me or I'm going to snuff you out. Whereas the um, gospel, as I see it, is more of a kind of marry me or go your own way. Like, like I want to be bound in union with you. I want to be in life with you. Uh, but if you prefer your autonomy, I'll, um, I'll create, in a sense, a space for that, uh, even though life apart from God is... Um, in my estimation, why, why would you want that? You know, but, but that, uh, and yeah, so I, I think I would just kind of maybe, maybe land there for now. In a Um, sense, then you're saying that the, the eternal aspect of, of giving people a place where they pursue their own rebellion is, is it more consistent with, with giving them their freedom than, than if you, if they were cutting them off? In, in that sense. Yeah, I see it as a, a more merciful option. Yeah, I use an analogy in, in the book. There's a chapter towards the end of the hell section on uh, hell is uh, democracy, hell is the suburbs, and hell is Facebook. You know, looking at these ways that uh, kind of in our own collective life today that we actually prefer uh, democracy, we prefer freedom from God. Suburbs, we prefer freedom from each other. Facebook, we prefer a sense of freedom from ourselves. Um, and I think uh, there's a sense where we see the logic of hell playing out around us and there's something to me when I when you get kind of tangible and practical like that to go, I'm going to pull out a gun and go shoot the dude on Facebook and his computer out in the suburbs, you know, like, uh, because I think his life looks so pathetic or something, you know, like, like that, that starts to feel kind of condescending and, and, and harsh, you know, but I, I, so part of it, I feel like it's the abstraction of, uh, the way, um, at times we, we talk about it so much in the abstract that, uh, it, it starts to be easier to think of kind of killing folks off. But I think we kind of get down to the, the, the nitty gritty of, um, if that was my neighbor, you know, a hundred, 500 years from now, would I want to go over there with a gun and, and, and take him out? Um, the, the traditional view seems to me to be more of a merciful, uh, kind of consistent with the character of God. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, we, we don't have time to, to probably unpack that any further really, um, at this point, but, but I understand Jeff that, that from your perspective, the, the view of annihilation, conditional immortality seems to make more sense for you of, of, of the the, be, the most merciful way to deal with people who do reject God ultimately. Um, there was at least one area where you, you said, Jeff, I think that you were more or less in full agreement with Josh on this book, and, it, and it's the third aspect, which we haven't really had time to cover at any depth, but uh, judgment. Do you want to just explain why you, you felt you were perfectly happy to go along with the way Josh um, approaches that particular issue? Yeah, um Things in our world need to be judged by a all-knowing, supremely good God. It's a good thing for 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 God mm. to judge child abuse. It's a good thing for God to judge violence and warfare. It's a good thing for God to judge um, the things in my heart in life that need to be repaired. Um, judgment is what we see in a doctor's office when when a doctor looks at us and says, "This is where you're unhealthy." And being able to surrender ourselves and our will to to, to Christ and the the Spirit's repair of our lives is is one of the the great hopes that we have in Christ. I suppose the problem is in popular culture, Josh. A lot of people, when they hear the word judgment, what they actually hear is judgmental, and and the idea that mm. God is somehow basically being a sort of 
hardline oppressor um, by sort of laying down some kind of, you know, judgmental rule. But but that's not mm. obviously the way that you see what judgment actually taken correctly from scripture should be. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think exclusivity is another way of putting the the challenge today that, that folks, when they hear of judgment, kind of final judgment, there's this uh, caricature, I think, often of uh, people who go to church are in and everyone else is out, you know, and it's like, God, oh, that seems kind of closed-minded or harsh, you know, but I think the biblical picture, I, I argue, especially through Jesus's parables, but in scripture as a whole is more of um, one of surprise. I, I suggest the, the chief characteristic of judgment in uh, Jesus's teaching and in scripture as a whole is that when God shows up to judge, the results are a shocking surprise. You know, it's kind of shock and awe. There's a sense that God shows up and he weeds out from within his people he kind of weeds out the hypocrisy and the junk that's not really of him and he gathers in from outside of his people he gathers in kind of the multitudes and the nations come streaming into the the kingdom feast and so uh, i i it's not universalism because there is a, a weeding out and it's not everyone that comes in but there is a um a a, a, a more nuanced picture a more robust picture and as we look into why God judges? I don't think Scripture gives us a clear picture of, of who's in and who's out in terms of my neighbor, or, you know, particular details. But I think it tells us who the judge is. That the Jesus, the judge is Jesus. He's a good judge. He he's better than we are, and and uh, and that his judgment is good news for the world because it comes from God's love and his desire to set his world right from the destructive things that tear it apart. In a sense, then, Jeff, judgment, you could equally use the word perhaps justice um, for that. It's God setting things right and, and you know, make, making, yeah, set, putting the scales back back into balance, if you, if you like. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. Uh, justice is, is the target that God is, is, uh, is aiming at in terms of God's judgments. And I love Josh's phrase there that we— we don't need to have all the standards laid out because we're not the judge, and it's actually very bad when Christians put themselves in the position of judge because we're pushing Christ out of the way and saying we can do this better than you. And our job is to be fully committed to loving others because Christ has given his life for their sake, and it's it's a good thing for us to get rid of our own judgmentalism because God's much, much better at that job than we are. If you don't mind me saying, Jeff, it sounds like, um, uh, and only because I, I n- know of his writings and, and speaking quite well, um, Greg Boyd in many of the things you're saying, um, did, has he been an influence in, in your thinking in terms of both annihilation and, um, you know, your view on violence and that kind of thing? Yeah, I've loved, um, if if you haven't, well, Greg Boyd's podcast is one of the best things out there right now. Uh, um, uh your show and his are the two I listen to, <laughs> but he's fantastic on on these fronts, and I think does present what is a healthy perspective. That I think we need to repaint Christianity in the minds of many um, of our of our neighbors, and I think his the way that he is painting it is is a very healthy um, perspective and, and worthy of adoption. What about you, Josh? Um, you don't have to sort of, you know, um, pick on anyone in in particular. But but in terms of trying to reframe Christianity in terms of these issues, do you think there are any other commentators out there who you're finding particularly helpful at the moment, or who have influenced you when you've come to write this book? 
Yeah, you know, a few, uh, N.T. Wright has been a big influence as for many, I know. Um, I really love uh, some folks like Miroslav Volf, uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff is someone who's influenced some of the, the work there, and uh, Oliver O'Donovan was a big one, and Colin Gunton, um, uh, William Cavanaugh is a favorite. Uh, but especially for me, too, I think I love kind of digging back into church history. Augustine is a major influence in the book. Uh, definitely drawn C.S. Lewis. He's brilliant, as always. And uh, some of the early church fathers like Irenaeus. Um, it just feels like there's a whole treasure trove of, of riches there within the tradition to, to dive into. Well, look, it's been been really interesting, and, and I'm so glad we uh, we were able to arrange today's program, uh, which came together, uh, as they sometimes do, uh, in very quick order and, and at a late stage um, in planning. But uh, it was good to have you both on and, and to just uh, take some time to, to walk through these issues and hear both of your perspectives on this. It's certainly been really informative for me and I'm sure for many people listening. So, uh, Jeff and Thank you Josh, so much. I've loved it. Yeah, thank, thank you, Jeff, as well, for being on with us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And, and once more, if you want to find out more about both my guests today, well, links from today's program online, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, click on today's program and, and there'll be links to Jeff and Josh and where you can find their books. But uh, if you're just searching um, joshuaryanbutler.com for Josh and everythingnew.org for Jeff. Uh, guys, thanks very much and um, all the best. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again at a later point. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's classic replay. Do let us know what you thought. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable or tweet us at unbelievable fe. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website premierunbelievable.com and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable. Unbelievable.